Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening once again. I'm Chris Jansing in for Brian Williams. Day 224 of the Biden administration, which is now trying to turn the page on the controversial exit from Afghanistan and the chaotic evacuation. This afternoon, about 24 hours after the last American C-17 cargo plane took off from Kabul, President Biden stepped to the podium at the White House State Dining Room to offer a vigorous defense of his decision to end America's longest war. No nation, no nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravely, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit to those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan. I ask, what is the vital national interest? It was time to end this war. We will maintain the fight against terrorism. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. And to ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet. The speech sketched the broader outlines of his foreign policy, saying the era of nation building is over. The president also noted the U.S. would help evacuate the estimated one to 200 Americans still in Afghanistan if they want to leave. The State Department also thanked Kabul embassy staff on social media, posting this photo taken just before their departure. There is no longer an embassy in Afghanistan. Those diplomats will now be based in Qatar. Meanwhile, NBC News has learned more about just how closely the Taliban worked with the American military to get evacuees to the airport. In some cases, the Taliban, quote, drove Americans through checkpoints, cleared streets so Americans could pass safely and even carried luggage to the airport gates. They may have also prevented some attacks. Today in Kabul, the Taliban solidified its grip on power and pledged to unify a, quote, stable and safe Afghanistan. They also called for new relations with the West and international investment. That may be a long time coming. Earlier this evening, Biden's chief of staff spoke to our MSNBC colleague, Mehdi Hassan, about recognizing the Taliban. Will the United States be recognizing the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan anytime soon? I don't think anytime soon. I don't know if we will ever recognize their government. Today, with U.S. forces gone, fighters roamed Kabul airport freely, examining equipment that had been left behind. U.S. military officials say it was all permanently disabled. We demilitarize those systems so that they'll never be used again. We have also demilitarized uh, equipment that we did not bring out at, uh, of the airport. Those aircraft will never fly again. Uh, when we left. They'll never be, uh, be able to be operated by anyone. 
We're also keeping an eye on several other major developments tonight. In Louisiana, more than a million people are still without power after Hurricane Ida battered the Gulf Coast on Sunday. Many areas have no gas, no clean running water supply, and the whole region is now blanketed in a sweltering heat. One of the hardest hit areas is the barrier island of Grand Isle, which is right next to where Ida made landfall Sunday. Here is what the director of the Jefferson Parish Department of Emergency Management told our own Rachel Maddow earlier tonight. This one really hit us head on. It did a tremendous amount of damage. Um, We just made it to the island today uh, with a rescue crew on a a search and rescue mission, and they reported that the island is devastated, that it's totally uninhabitable. There's three to six feet of sand that was washed up from the Gulf on the entire island. And they have no power, they have no cell phone communication. So um, we are staging supplies now so that we can set up for a recovery process. But that's certainly going to take a while. Meanwhile, a Texas bill restricting access to the ballot is now headed to Governor Greg Abbott's desk. Democrats in the state legislature have been trying to stop the measure, even leaving the state in protest to prevent votes. We'll have much more on this just ahead. And all of this as the U.S. continues to grapple with the relentless spread of the Delta variant. The White House says it's ramping up efforts to help states dealing with a surge of infections by sending more personnel, critical supplies and treatments to hospitals. And there is now new concern tonight about an emerging COVID variant. Bloomberg News reports South African researchers have identified a new strain that they say may spread easily and may have an increased ability to evade antibodies. That, as Florida has begun penalizing school districts, defying Governor DeSantis's ban on mask mandates. The State Department of Education is now withholding funds from two school districts that made masks mandatory in classrooms. With that, let's bring in our leadoff guests on this Tuesday night. Ashley Parker, Pulitzer Prize-winning White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. A.B. Stoddard, veteran Washington journalist and associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics, and Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama. His latest book is After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Good to see all of you tonight. A very important night for this country in Afghanistan. So, Ashley Parker, you were actually in the room at the White House for that speech. What struck you about what he said in his delivery that perhaps was not as apparent to those of us who were watching at home? You know, in the room, and I think a lot of this did come through on television, what struck me first was... um, his tone and his delivery that he was defiant and fiery in moments. It felt like he was almost shouting the first part of his speech and hushed and whispery and others trying to make a point, banging a soul finger on the lectern. Um, he was defensive. He seemed to uh, anticipate the criticism, understand it, very much wanted to push back on that narrative that we left Americans behind. In fact, there are about 100 200 Americans, the president said himself, who wanted to get out and had yet not been able to. But but he very much sort of went through all the people who had been evacuated, the more than 6,000 Americans, the more than 100,000 Afghans, um, and even in some cases sort of explicitly pre-butted and rebutted his critics saying, you may say this, here's my response. You may ask for a third decade in Afghanistan. 
here's my response. So it, it was explanatory. Uh, it, it was defiant. It, it was justifying it. Um, and it was it was a grim speech. It, it was not particularly ebullient or, or hopeful, although there were small glimpses of uh, the president trying to lay out sort of a better path forward in the 21st century of fighting terror and, and going uh, to war abroad. Amy Stoddard, was this the speech Biden needed to give right now, post-withdrawal, post-evacuation? Did you think this was the tone he needed to take? Some critics have argued he sounded too defensive. And I understand we're having some problems with your video, but we can hear you. So what's your thought about the speech? Well, Chris, I think he has, I mean, Ashley's right. He was defiant and he was defensive. And he that's consistent with the way he has spoken about this all along. He has the support of the public on his side on the policy of withdrawal. It's the process of the withdrawal that he is losing support over. People have not accepted yet what he is saying, which is that it was inevitable, that chaos was always going to ensue and it was going to be dangerous. And they see tragedy and they think this was botched. Maybe after the speech today, uh, they will... uh, believe what the president is telling them, that there was no other way to do this. It was always going to come out this way. And they will uh, change their mind. I think that, though, will depend on whether or not the remaining Americans are able to come home safely, or they are in Afghanistan a while longer and and remain safe, that we don't see uh, chaos, violence, executions, tragedy, um, from the Taliban. Uh, and that's th- that's really going to be on, uh, the burden of the White House is to, to, to this administration is to take care of those people that they say now that the military is gone, they believe they can protect and bring home through diplomatic channels with the Taliban. That's a huge, huge challenge. Yeah. So I think the president um, believe that, believes that, that, that the policy was right. I don't know the American people, even though they agree with him, like the way it's going. I don't know that they're going to change their mind. We're going to talk some more, Ben Rhodes, about the specifics of Afghanistan right now. But I want to ask you about policy, big picture, because we began to hear Biden lay out his doctrine. What would you say were the main components? You know, he said this decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. Yeah, no, Chris, I think in the big picture, the bet that Joe Biden is making is that his foreign policy is about bringing an end to the post 9-11 period of these large nation building projects in Iraq and Afghanistan that set unachievable objectives that were unsustainable that have cost trillions of dollars. And what he's saying is I'm not going to continue those policies that have demonstrably not succeeded against their objectives that carry huge costs. And also, importantly, in the back half of that speech, what he was saying is, look, part of the reason why we have to end these wars is we have to focus on a new set of challenges in the world. We have to focus on the challenge from China and the threats to democracy from Russia. We have to focus on the the challenge of climate change. We obviously have to do a lot of work on our democracy at home. And I think the entire Biden presidency, as it interacts with this foreign policy, is saying, I'm going to turn the page on this post 9-11 period and move us into a new phase, a new role in the world that is not defined by these military endeavors. Uh, and frankly, look, obviously, there's a lot to, to, to look at and things to criticize in the execution of the withdrawal. I think what they're thinking in the White House, Chris, is that as this decision ages, the, 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 the profound choice to end the war is what people will remember. 
and that that's something that will both draw public support in the long run and will also position the United States in the long run to be better capable of defending these other interests and addressing these other priorities without continuing to be prosecuting a war in Afghanistan. Let me ask you about another take that The Wall Street Journal has on this, Ben. Quote, counterterrorism and intelligence officials say it will be much harder and less effective than the White House suggests. The U.S. has lost many of its key assets for tracking violent militants and their plots, they say. All that, plus we can't forget the fact, Ben, that the Taliban is inheriting a country that's both very poor and polarized. Polarized, has the White House boxed, its, boxed itself into a corner? How difficult is it going to be to achieve all of its objectives in dealing with the Taliban, getting Americans, getting some Afghans home safely, and protecting national security? Well, I think, you know, you, you talk about a Biden doctrine. I'm always hesitant to affix like a bumper sticker to things. Uh, we were resistant to that in the Obama years. But essentially, when it comes to terrorism, the argument that he's making, that he made again today, is that if you look, Chris, I mean, you covered us in the Obama White House, if you look at the places where the United States has had to take action to disrupt certain terrorist plots, it includes countries like Pakistan or Somalia or Yemen or places in North Africa, where we do not have thousands of troops on the ground, where, you know, in most cases, we're not engaged in a ground war. And what he's saying is that combination of intelligence and air power and, and, and in some cases, cooperation from partners on the ground is ultimately a more sustainable way to defend the country than having this kind of ground presence in a country like Afghanistan. I, I think that, that that holds up if you look at the experience in recent years with one big question mark, Chris, which is that we don't know what the Taliban is going to do when they're actually in charge. Are they going to tacitly allow for a group like ISIS to have a safe haven? Are they going to invite in elements of al-Qaeda that they've had connections to in the past, therefore raising the bar on the United States to take military action, more aggressive military action in Afghanistan. We don't know that yet. Um, and that's, you know, the Taliban will have to watch that in the coming weeks and months to determine whether or not, you know, obviously the Taliban poses a risk to the Afghan people, but whether or not they pose an increased counterterrorism threat. But again, I think his core argument, which I think is backed up by a lot of evidence in the last 20 years, is trillions of dollars spent nation building and permanent U.S. presence in these countries where they're having civil wars is not making us safer, is not the right allocation of resources, is not sustainable, is not achieving the objectives that were set at the outset of these wars. And somebody had to turn the page on this era. And, and again, there's a lot to debate about the execution of the withdrawal, as A.B. said. And, and you know, there are a lot of Afghans, as well as Americans, who still need to get out of that country if they're going to be safe. But on the core issue of America's interests, uh, I think he's quite confident that in the long run, uh, you know, he'll be able to demonstrate that we need to move beyond this period of war and that we can defend our counterterrorism interests uh, without having a ground force in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and there's no doubt that in the long run, the American people in poll after poll support the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But you write today, Ashley, about this more perilous phase for Biden's dealings with Afghanistan. As you talk to folks with within the White House, what's their biggest concern in the short term? Well, in the short term, there's a couple. Uh, sort of first and foremost, of course, are those roughly 100 to 200 Americans who are still on the ground trapped there who want to leave. Um, as you pointed out, uh, Americans generally agree with the president's decision to leave Afghanistan, where it has gotten problematic for him 
is how he is managing this process. And that is the one thing that Americans and the White House is aware of are still paying attention to. If there is a fellow American citizen in Afghanistan who cannot get out um, or again, if there are you know any other major attacks, obviously all of our troops are gone, but that's sort of the immediate. And then in the, the near term issues they're dealing with, there's for starters, the refugee crisis, right? We have airlifted, as the president said, over 100,000 Afghans out of the country into neighboring countries. But this now begins a long and perilous journey for those refugees. Many of them are being housed uh, in places that are overcrowded and squalid conditions. They then have to be processed. There are many Afghans who worked with Americans for this two-decade-long war who are eligible um, to still leave the country and have not yet been able to. Uh, interpreters, for instance, um, who work with, again, soldiers and military contractors. And then those Afghans are going to be resettled, some of them, in the United States. In some communities, they're uh, receiving a very warm welcome. Other places, it's a bit more wary. and other places, it's downright hostile and has the potential to become a, a Republican talking point that's that's weaponized. So those are sort of the immediate and mid-short-term concerns for the White House right now. And A.B., let's talk just for a minute about the politics of all this. And I want to play uh, what re congressional Republicans are saying tonight about the president. We are less safe as a result of this self-inflicted wound. This was a an unforced error of foreign policy blunder of gargantuan proportions. I believe there should be accountability for what I, what I see as probably the biggest failure in American government on a military stage in my lifetime. The Biden administration is lying to us about the threats we face from Afghanistan, about yeah. what they knew and when they knew it. What do you think, A.B., from a political perspective about the Republican reaction so far and how will what happened in Afghanistan impact Biden's effort to get his domestic agenda passed in Congress or maybe even looking forward to 2022? Is this going to be the issue or is COVID, the economy, going to be the issues that people vote on? Well, I think that the president's approval numbers were dipping before the withdrawal from Afghanistan because of the explosion of the Delta variant and concerns that uh, the country and the economy are going to suffer because of the new infections um, from the Delta variant. The, the, the Republicans, even if they were supportive of a withdrawal from Afghanistan, are going to take advantage of this and be watching any potential terror threat uh, emanating from Afghanistan, there's no question. Um, the problem with f further issues there in terms of the Americans who remain is that Democrats have been, uh, you know, as some of them as critical as Republicans. So the actual, the abandonment of Americans will be a major theme, I think, louder than even um, the vetting of refugees that you hear from Republicans uh, in the weeks to come. Domestic agenda is is reaching an acute stage in September as the, the Democrats um, try to come together with intraparty fights on this human versus physical infrastructure and avert a government shutdown and increase the debt ceiling. This is an excruciating month ahead for them. They really need Afghanistan uh, to go smoothly um, and to be out of the headlines. A.B. Stoddard, Ben Rhodes, Ashley Parker, thank you all.
Appreciate it. And coming up, the disturbing report out of Georgia where anti-vaccine protesters actually forced one vaccine drive to shut down as new cases continue to rise. And later, what's next in the battle for voting rights after Texas Republicans passed a major bill today that makes it much harder to vote? The 11th hour just getting underway on a Tuesday night. Many of our line workers who are doing these vaccinations are receiving threats, are receiving hostile emails. When I heard that uh, one mobile event uh, in, in, one, in one town had to close down because of the harassment, bullying, and threats that were directed at, the, at the, our team. I just said, this is wrong. These people are giving their lives to help others and to help us in the state. We in Georgia can do better. A direct rebuke from Dr. Kathleen Toomey, the head of Georgia's Department of Public Health, who said several vaccination drives were disrupted and that one was actually forced to shut down over threats from anti-vaccine protesters. A spokesperson for Dr. Toomey told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, Aside from feeling threatened themselves, staff realized no one would want to come to that location for a vaccination under those circumstances. So they packed up and left. Back with us again tonight, Dr. Erwin Redliner, founding director of Columbia's National Center for Disaster Preparedness, who advises us on public health. He's also a professor of pediatrics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Well, I, you know, first of all, the threats, besides the fact that that is absolutely outrageous, I thought, if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, chances are you probably were a little hesitant. You finally decide you're going to go and there are threats, there's harassment. I, 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 what do you make of what you heard from the, the good doctor there? Chris, it was just stunning to hear those words and those reports. Uh, this whole anti-vax movement has reached a new you know, uncharted layer of insanity that I think we have to worry about. It was bad enough when people were just actually hesitant and legitimately waiting for new information and reassurance that the vaccines were effective and safe. We got that and especially emphasized that with the full approval of the FDA for those vaccines. But then we're left with this hardcore group of people who believe in conspiracy theories and just nutty ideas about what vaccines do and don't do. And I, I think that was bad enough. And now we have these reports now of violent threats against people uh, that are administering these life-saving vaccines to people, enough so that it actually intimidates people who really do want to get vaccinated to the point where they're not coming to get their shots. I, I wish the, the government locally uh, in states where this is happening would crack down. This, this has got to be uh, not acceptable, no matter what party the governor is and the local officials are. We've, we've got to put a stop to this. Yeah, Because as we know, people who are involved, whether it's in vaccinations or treating people with COVID, have had their hands full. Uh, during an interview with USA Today today, uh, you called Hurricane Ida's aftermath, quote, a pandemic tinderbox. So you have a state that has hospitals already full. Now you have no water, no electricity, myriad problems. What are your biggest concerns coming out of the storm's devastation? Yeah, so this is the problem with some large-scale natural disasters, which include hurricanes like Hurricane Ida, but also things like wildfires in uh, on the West Coast. And what I'm talking about is if you have a natural disaster, 
that's forcing people to evacuate quickly and go into shelters, whether it's again a wildfire or Hurricane Ida, you are actually forcing people to move uh, together on buses and other forms of transportation. And then they end up in a shelter where it's very difficult to, ma to maintain spacing and do the other things that uh, keep people safe, especially in states like Louisiana where the vaccination rates are low. So we have conflicting agendas for managing Hurricane Ida uh, survival and uh, making sure that people uh, do not get too close uh, to uh, cause contamination with the coronavirus. And it's a very tough situation because mm -hmm. the solution, Chris, is that you need twice as many shelters because we have to keep, keep people separated. And we don't really have that in very many places now. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about this new research from South Africa that flagged a new C12 variant for the world to monitor. What do we know about it? Should we be worried? Well, I'm not worried. Most people are not worried about it. We've, we've noticed it, but it's not even a variant of interest, no less a variant of concern, which are the categories that we start to really pay attention. Right now, it's just a newly identified variant. We're going to have to see how that unfolds. Hopefully, it will not be a cause for too much concern or trouble, but we'll just have to watch. But it's a reminder that variants are constantly developing, constant mutations, and we have to track and surveil those as carefully and as effectively as we possibly can, Chris. Dr. Erwin Redliner, always great to see you. Thank you so much. And coming up, what exactly is in that new restrictive voting bill in Texas that's on its way to the governor's desk when the 11th hour continues? Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is not a day that I was looking forward to. It's not that I was naive and thought that this day would not come. I knew this day was coming. Um, I had just hoped that Washington would act before my colleagues here in Austin would act and hopefully provide some cover. So to, to me, it's a very solemn day. Strict new voting restrictions are on their way to Texas Governor Greg Abbott's desk after cruising through the Texas legislature. The state Senate gave final approval today. Now, among other things, the law restricts early voting, adds criminal penalties for some poll workers, protects partisan poll watchers and institutes voter ID for vote by mail. Red state election laws like this increase pressure on Congress to protect voting rights on a federal level, something that in the current political climate seems unlikely. 
Back with us again tonight, Juanita Tolliver, a veteran political strategist to progressive candidates and causes, and Matthew Dowd, former George W. Bush strategist and founder of Country Over Party. Good to see both of you. So, Juanita, where does the Biden White House need to focus its energy if there's any hope of moving federal voting rights legislation when you look at this bill Clearly, it targets some of the things that were very effective in 2020 at allowing more people, particularly people of color, to vote. That's right, Chris. And the two places the Biden administration should focus on are first, publicly expressing their support for passing uh, voting rights and election protection legislation through Congress with a carve out in the filibuster and then privately applying pressure to Senate Democrats. And I want to emphasize Senate Democrats because we know that the Republican Party writ large is resolute in their decision to not advance any voting rights protections and honestly support this coordinated effort of voter suppression that we're seeing across the country. So it now falls to Senate Democrats to honestly take up that same energy that we saw from the Texas Democrats and State Representative Crockett and use every tool in their power to be able to advance HR1 and HR4. And I, I don't say that lightly. I think it's going to be a big step for the White House to come out and absolutely naming the need to have a carve out in the filibuster, because without it, we know that black and brown voters will suffer. We know that the very voters who elected Democrats and gave them the White House and gave them the Senate will be looking at them to deliver for them and protect their right to vote, which we should all have access to, not these new barriers that we're seeing out of Texas that we know, even though their state representatives are and the Republicans in the state house are trying to say it's not racist action. We know that these voter suppression bills disproportionately impact Black, Latino, AAPI, and Indigenous communities. And that's why we need the White House to apply pressure. And that's why we need Senate Democrats to stop tiptoeing about the filibuster. And because, Matthew Dowd, I think since uh, Donald Trump lost the election, there have been, this may be the 17th or 18th, I think it's the 18th state that has passed restrictive new voting laws. I want to play for you this exchange when Wisconsin Senator Rob Johnson, who has perpetuated lies about voter fraud in 2020, says something actually different. Take a listen. So you're telling me that Joe Biden won the state fair and square? Because I don't see it. I don't believe it. Look at the total. It's certainly plausible. There's, no, there's nothing obviously. There's nothing obviously skewed about the results. There isn't. There's nothing skewed about the results. About the results in Wisconsin. But then, Matt, after saying the vote wasn't skewed, he said he supports the Wisconsin Republican election investigation and audit. How do you square that? Well, <laughs> there's no way to square anything with what the Republicans are doing right now, and. It is fundamentally just to follow up. It's fundamentally they know the electorate is has changed. They know it is changing. We added 23 million Americans between the two census, all of which were people of color. All 23 million that were added were people of color in Texas, where I am, where the leadership here is God awful uh, in doing all this. Four million people got added. Ninety five percent of the people that were added in the population were people of color. And so. This is, I think it's directly related to broaden this a little bit, is Republicans want to pass unpopular things that the American public doesn't want, and then they don't want to be held accountable. Because the only way in our country to hold politicians accountable, unless you're a multimillionaire can hire lobbyists, is through the franchise of vote. 
And one thing about the history of our country, we have never had true universal suffrage. We've struggled towards it. We've moved towards it over the years, granting the right to vote to people that didn't own property, granting the right to vote to women. And then the Civil Rights Act that finally got us the closest we've ever come in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Act to universal suffrage. And what are the Republicans doing? Rolling it back pre-1965. That's basically what they're doing. And this is not just, it, it, it disproportionately affects African-Americans and Latinos, as was said, but it affects everybody. This is an American issue. It affects urban voters, suburban voters, rural voters. And basically, as I said, what it does is removes any accountability these elected officials would have for unpopular policies because they don't want to face an electorate that they know if it looks like America, if the electorate looks like America, Republicans can't win. Both guests are staying with us and coming up. Now the big lie coming from inside the House when the 11th hour continues. Nearly seven months after Trump supporters laid siege on the U.S. Capitol, his staunchest allies continue to pour fuel on the conspiracy flames that sparked the riot. This was freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn at a GOP event in North Carolina this past weekend. I'll tell you, anybody who tells you that Joe Biden was dutifully elected, <laughs> if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's, it's going to lead to one place, and it's bloodshed. And I will tell you, as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. So not only did an elected member of Congress appear to threaten violence against fellow Americans, when asked when he'd call people to Washington again, he told that crowd, quote, we are actively working on that. In a statement to The Washington Post, a spokesman for the congressman said, quote, the lawmaker was in no way supporting or advocating for any form of violence. Still with us, Juanita Tolliver and Matthew Dowd. Matthew, so he says he would dread doing it, but if elections continue to be stolen, also known as the big lie, it's going to lead to bloodshed. Democrats are complaining, but really, where's the accountability here? He's not the first one. Well, it's already led to bloodshed. The big lie has already led to bloodshed. I mean, to me, the most dangerous thing that's affecting our democracy today, which may sink it, which I'm actually worried about it, is the fact that we no longer believe or a part of our country no longer believes that truth matters and they no longer believe in the common good. They no longer believe that we should do things and sacrifice in the interests of all to, to, to make everyone else better. But the constant lies have, have not only caused this huge problem with with what happened on January 6th, they've caused this huge problem on the pandemic. They've caused a huge problem on facing climate change because lie after lie after lie after lie keeps feeding this. And in the end, what it's going to do, I mean, I don't feel sorry for the people that are, that are, are listening to this and then taking action on it, but they're being lied to. And when they're lied to, they actually decide, well, if this is not if this, I need to like overthrow the government because it's been it's it's a fraud. And that, when they're told that over and over and over again, the natural extension extension from that is what happened on January 6th. And I worry that January 6th is just a precursor to a worse event or worse events 
around the country. It's not going to just happen at the Washington Capitol. It's going to happen in Austin, Texas. It's going to happen in Albany, New York. It's going to happen in Sacramento, California. It's going to Tallahassee, Florida. Every place this is, as it gets pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and the anger builds from this group of people that believe the lie, it's going to keep going. And until elected officials are held accountable, we're not going to be able to deal with it. It's not 400 people at an insurrection. Elected officials who instigated this have to be held accountable. So, Juanita, look, he's right. This isn't a theoretical situation. Five people died as a result of January 6th. 100-plus police officers were injured. Cawthorn, though, calls the insurrectionists the, the people who got caught political prisoners. Do you agree? Do you share the concerns that Matthew just stated that this isn't going to stop here? Absolutely, Chris. And I think the only other thing I'll say to build on to what Matt shared is that it is already happening around the country. Let's not forget about the plot to kidnap and harm Governor Whitmer. Let's not forget that just what, 12 days ago, there was a guy at the Capitol threatening to blow up the whole space. All right. Like it's still happening. And and that I feel like those other state based events that we saw in Michigan and Wisconsin and across the country were warm ups for the insurrection. And absolutely, there's going to be more to come, especially when you have elected officials spewing lies that we know the base that they speak to. They hear that and they're ready and willing to act on it. And it's an active threat and it's an active danger that that really prompts and, and explains why representatives like Cory Bush and others have been calling for investigations into an expulsion of any members who helped to facilitate the insurrection, who could potentially incite another insurrection. And that's why Representative Cawthorn should be expelled immediately. And, and this should be done. He should not be allowed to serve in Congress spouting lies, dangerous lies like this, because it's not just rhetoric, Chris. This is actionable information that we know many Republicans across the country are ready and willing to act on. Matthew, you were just talking about Texas. They're, they're passing laws and there's no fraud. Are these lawmakers feeding this dangerous narrative, this potentially deadly narrative with legislation? Yeah. And, and I think some of them will quietly say, well, like, yeah, we know there's no fraud, but we're kind of doing this because our base wants us to do this. But we're going ahead and doing this. They're actually <laughs> they're actually part and parcel of why we're ended up where we are. And keep in mind, this lie combined with a base that's willing to be instigated, elected officials who aren't responsible, plus more than 300 million guns that are in this country. Three, more than 300 million guns sit in this country. So you have a lie, you, so you have a fire that started, a, a fireman that's supposed to put it out won't put it out, and then all of these people hold gasoline at their house. So that's what this is. So what do you do about it, Juanita? I mean, can the January 6th commission uh, at least shine some light? What can happen here? January 6th commission absolutely is working on shining some light on this. And we see the concern that Republicans are already pushing back with on what is even being requested in terms of these telecommunication records being preserved. You saw McCarthy come out and, and oppose it. And they're, they're already showing signs of concern about what will be discovered, what will be unearthed. And so the January 6th commission absolutely needs to keep pressure on this and keep exposing the truth to the American public. Because not only does the American public deserve to know the truth, but this country never 
needs to experience what happened on January 6th again. And so getting all the information possible out there is critical, as well as, again, accountability for elected officials who continue to perpetuate these lies and continue to rile up their base in a violent, violent, dangerous way. Juanita Tolliver, Matthew Dowd, thank you. And coming up, an update on two natural disasters, including the unrelenting wildfire now threatening a popular vacation destination when the 11th hour continues. We are keeping a close eye tonight on disasters in two popular parts of the country. In Northern California, the Caldor fire is moving ever closer to Lake Tahoe. Thousands of people have already been evacuated as firefighters struggle to contain those wind-driven flames. And in the hurricane-hit state of Louisiana, thousands who fled Ida's path are still being told not to return. Water and sewer services remain disrupted. And the power is still out for more than a million. NBC News correspondent Morgan Chesky reports from New Orleans. Tonight, it's a slow motion disaster, leaving more than a million people in the dark. Do you have any idea when you'll get power back? Right now, no. How's that feel? Crazy. Ida crippling a massive power grid. Today, the energy provider is saying it could take three weeks before hard hit areas are back up. The schools are not open, the businesses are not open, the hospitals are slammed. There's not water in your home and there's not going to be electricity. In St. Charles Parish, just west of New Orleans, officials now warning residents to prepare for more than a month. These are all empty. For Clyde Jackson, fuel for his generator, more precious than water. I'm on diesel now and I can't get diesel. So, I mean, once that goes, it goes. What then? That's it. Many hospitals, including New Orleans Oshner Health, are still relying on generators. But as Ida struck, neurosurgeons Dr. Roger Smith and Joseph Lockwood faced a patient emergency. We brought him into the operating room. It involved taking a piece of the skull right off temporarily. In the middle of a hurricane. In the middle of a hurricane. The lights kind of flickered right before we were starting. I was scrubbing in and then the lights went out and Dr. Smith looked at me and said, well, I guess we'll do the whole thing under candlelight. The lights came back on just in time. Tonight, thousands of line crews racing against time, fighting brutal heat and Ida's aftermath to bring one disaster to a close. And tonight, the governor says more than 25,000 linemen from 22 states have converged on Louisiana. But even with all that help, the main energy provider says while some could see power back on in 48 hours, there is no definite timetable on when that grid will be fully online. Our thanks to Morgan Chesky and a very late update. Entergy told the city council tonight power could return to some customers late tomorrow, though many more will probably have to wait weeks. Coming up, the top Republican is making threats over the House 1-6 investigation. Wonder why that is when the 11th hour continues. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
The last thing before we go tonight concerns the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. You'll remember Republicans, namely the most powerful Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy, refused a deal that would have given his party an equal number of committee members and equal subpoena power throughout the investigation. Democrats are now leading the investigative panel with Republicans of their choosing, ones McCarthy called Pelosi Republicans. Last night, we reported the committee plans to ask telecommunications companies for phone, email and social media records with a particular group of lawmakers in mind. Trump loyal Republicans, including the likes of Lauren Boebert, Jim Jordan, Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Kevin McCarthy's name is not among those named in the report, but the list of lawmakers is still evolving, according to NBC News sources. Today, Leader McCarthy threatened those same companies, saying the GOP would punish them if and when they retake control of the House, adding, quote, a Republican majority will not forget. According to Politico, McCarthy called out Democrats for what he called attempts to strong arm private companies to turn over individuals' private data. Earlier tonight, the McCarthy retribution plan got the Fox News seal of approval. These telecommunications companies, they better not play with these Democrats because Republicans are coming back into the majority in 2022 and we will take this very serious. Well, you should shut them down. I mean, you should take those companies down. It's also worth remembering this detail from the Capitol riot. As we reported back in February, McCarthy himself got into an expletive-laden argument on a phone call as the January 6th Capitol riot was still unfolding. Since then, he's been tight-lipped about that call, as you can see in this exchange back in April on Fox News Sunday. I'm asking you specifically, did he say to you, I guess some people are more concerned about the election than you are. No, listen, my conversations with the president are my conversations with the president. And that is our broadcast for this Tuesday night with our thanks for being with us. On behalf of all my colleagues at the networks of NBC News, good night. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.